0: everyone. This is Kate Kelly, founder of Ording Women. And I just wanted to talk about the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. It is just such an invaluable resource. I love listening to it. I came to a point in my life where I just really needed to hear the voices of women telling stories about women. And that's what this podcast is. Lindsay's series about polygamy is unique. And totally unprecedented. It's a wonderful resource and women doing wonderful work deserve to get paid. So please support the podcast if you can, if you can make a regular donation of just $5 a month, it would mean a lot. And it means not only that you continue to get wonderful material and stuff to listen to, but it also means that women doing this work are supported, which is important. So please support. The Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast
1: One, Two, Three, Go
0: Feminist Mormon Housewives.
2: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And this episode is actually the third part in a four-part episode of episode 84 of polygamy controversies and maybe lesser known facts about polygamy. And I'm bringing back all the listeners, favorite guest, Joe Geisner. Can you say hello? Hello.
1: You are too kind, Lindsay. Thank you very much. And well and I feel welcome, very much welcome back, and uh and thanks to all you listeners. I appreciate that. That's very kind of all of you.
2: And I just want to say one thing to the listeners. Most of you know this already, but I've I checked the downloads on both feminist Mormon Housewives and year of polygamy.com and FMH gets way more downloads. So I just want to remind everyone if you want just the Year of Polygamy episodes or if you want them on your iTunes, go to yearofpolygamy.com. We have set up a site with just those, so you don't um, have all the other FMH episodes, which are great, which are about feminist theory and women's experiences in the church. But just a reminder that you can go to iTunes and look for yearofpolygamy.com episodes. So today we're going to be talking about, I would say, I don't know if it's a controversy in the topic in in and of itself, but in the individual stories, there are some pretty salacious stories that are very controversial, which is why I brought Joe on whenever there's controversy. Joe Joe is here to help us out with this. So, Joe, let's talk about the women who said no to polygamy.
1: It, it's a fun subject, and the more I delved into it, the more interesting it became for me. You and I, we spent quite a bit of time on the Reformation. In Utah, during under Brigham Young, and that was, I would say, that would have been the height of uh, the numbers in polygamy, meaning percentage wise, and that from that point onward, there was a steady decline, and it actually became an avalanche in women rejecting polygamy, and the amount of women who would have rejected polygamy is is probably overwhelming. It would be wonderful if somebody actually did a, a history on that. I'm not sure that's really possible now because most of those women have passed on. But it would have been wonderful to have uh, done oral histories and really documented. I think most of that, and we, you and I have talked about this, that most of those stories, unfortunately, are just passed down through families. And, and there's not even letters. There's there's really nothing from those people who actually went through, it's just hearsay, and and so what what you and I are going to try and do is actually bring about things that that we can actually document. And and I, and and I want
2: to point out that this was this has probably been the episode that has been most requested by listeners that are women. They want to hear the stories of women saying no because we've talked a lot about the stories of women who said yes and. That- As you will show us, it was not a consensus across the board, regardless of the penalties attached to not practicing polygamy.
1: Well, and I would even go so far as to say that it was actually the norm of rejecting polygamy, particularly from the 18, from 1850 onward, 1858, I'm sorry, 1858 onward, and that it wasn't the exception to reject it. And so, so you would have to say that most of the women in Utah were rejecting polygamy
2: now let's talk Uh, about that really quick so we do know it was a small percentage of the population and historians have long argued is it two percent is it ten percent is it fifteen percent that practice polygamy but why is it that you're naming 1858 as the time when the tides uh the tide starts to turn a little bit
1: both catherine danes and Pauline Paula Harline in their books, I really enjoyed both of them for what they talk about during this. That that particularly uh, Catherine Dane's documents how Brigham Young was starting to be feel reluctant. There were some signs that he was actually feeling reluctant in the number because of that that reformation period and the amount of people getting a divorce, the women coming to him and asking him for divorce. So I, I would say that that's why they both convinced me. And And they're both actually, it's interesting because it's both chapter 10 in each of their books where they deal with this subject. And I would recommend that. I would recommend to people who are interested to see Oh, and the oh the other source that's very important, though it's a very difficult book to find, is Carmen Hardy's works of Abraham, or doing the works of Abraham. In there, he and we'll actually get into some of that, but he actually quotes uh, from observers who were seeing this decline. So in the the sixties and eighteen seventies, matter of fact, Wilfred Woodruff, when he was talking in the the manifesto about not, not knowing of any plural marriages occurring in temples in Utah, he was not lying. He was actually being sincere. He did not know. Now we talked in, in in a podcast that you and I did on Mormon stories, we talked about that there were, and that, that the wording actually had to be changed in the manifesto because Wilford Woodruff did not know about plural marriages that were occurring, that his counselors did know about. But he was being sincere, and, and so it was something that was going away. That new generation of Mormons, they were rejecting for marriage. Uh, folks like Anton Lund, who became a first counselor in the, the first presidency under Joseph F. Smith, or Anthony Ivins, who became, uh, first counselor under, uh, Heber J. Grant, and David O. McKay, who ultimately came, became president of the church, all were Monogamous. They all rejected polygamy, um, and they were all brought into the hierarchy right during that transition time. So they were that, they were that new generation. Now there is, you know, exceptions to the rule, obviously, with Abraham Cannon, Abraham Owen Woodruff, who, and Rudger Claussen, who married polygamously after the 1890 manifesto. But they had been polygamous before. So, So they were just carrying on what they had already been a part of. But, but this new generation, they were throwing off that and, and particularly the women, the women and, and each of the, and there really needs to be work done on each one of the wives of those three men, Lund, Ivans, and McKay, because I believe just the bits and pieces I found that, that it was really them who said, no, this is not happening in this home, you know, and, and so, and, and Ivans is interesting. Because Ivan's was the guy, the, the main guy, who um, was performing plural marriages in Mexico for the hierarchy. He was the go-to guy, and yet he was a monogamist. And that's why, and it was, again, because he was a monogamist, why he was brought into the hierarchy. So, speaking of Paula... I, do you mind if I read um, a thing that she wrote about the demise of, of polygamy?
2: No, not at all.
1: That'd be great. Okay, so the percentage of, this is quoted from her in Chapter 10. The percentage of polygamous members was in decline as well, partly because polygamy was math, has mathematical limits. During the Mormon Reformation of the 1850s, When every available woman, young or old, seemed swept up into marriage, the prevalence of polygamy was too high to be perpetuated perpetuated. In other words, at f- first the practice ballooned not only because they were slightly more there were slightly more women than men, but because men married both women who were older than they were and girls who were much younger than they were. Once the female population of marriageable females was depleted, men only had so many women or girls whom they could marry and subsequently the polygamous population by necessity declined demographically sustainable levels. Thus, even though statistically during the 1870s and 1880s there were more polygamous wives because the general population was greater, polygamous wives made up a smaller percentage of the entire Mormon population. Perhaps inevitably their lifestyle became more specialized and obscure. Polygamous marriages were increasingly overshadowed by monogamous marriages. So I think I think Paula, Paula actually does a great job in capturing that feeling.
2: Yeah, she's fantastic and I really love the conclusion she's drawn from her research.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. It, it, in Catherine Dane's book, and unfortunately, I cannot find the women's exponent on a PDF of it. I would love to have one because there's a great deal of, of great information. But a M. E. M.E. Teasdale, and now Teasdale was an apostle, and I have no idea if this person is a, a relative, a wife, a daughter, who. But in 1888, she wrote in the women's exponent, she said, I know that some of my young sisters would rather marry a young man with bad habits than one who is religious for fear. He, the religious one would sometimes take another wife. So it, you know, and, and Catherine Danes in her book is, is making it sound like the women were, were going to these bad boys, I guess we'd want to call them because it did two things for them. One was, it made it so that they weren't necessarily the ones, those bad boys would become polygamous. But the other was that it put off marriage for them so they could become older before they actually got married. Um, because remember, Utah, in, particularly in those 1850s, The marriage, the, the, the marriage age in Utah for women and girls, well, particularly girls was so young. Um, I think the average age was, was five years younger than the national average or something like that.
2: Also a controversy.
1: Correct. That is correct. Um, this is found in the, the, doing the works of Abraham. This is a, an interesting, uh, It's from a book written by a man named William Hepworth Dixon. He was an English nobleman. He was also a snob. And, uh, he, uh, an elitist, you know, any, that being an American, um, (laughs) I, I'm not a, I'm not big on royalty. So to me, these guys are just a bunch of uh, snobs. But he claimed that he had talked with, uh, John Taylor in the 1870s. And that he admitted that Taylor admitted that Mormons in the cities were rejecting polygamy while those in the rural parts of Utah were still willing to partake partake of it. So this is what uh, Dixon writes. He says that rage in favor of plurality is past. Some leaders have renounced the practice, others have denounced the dogma of polygamy. Well, in the city, you may note such cases, says the Apostle John Taylor, putting my case aside with what appears to me a weary shrug. A gentleman influence has been creeping in, no doubt, and business people are the first to see things in worldly light. But on the country farms and the lonely sheep runs you will find a pastoral people, eager to fulfill the law as it is given to us, and to enjoy the blessings offered by God to his obedient saints. No sooner was the railway built, the valley opened, and the stranger admitted, than a change in view set in. Do you wish me to infer, I asked the Apostle, that the rich and educated Mormons are giving up polygamy, and the poor and ignorant brethren are taking it? No, answered me with meek reproof. We should not take to put the matter so. So worldly men are weary of obedience to the law, while others, pure in heart and true in faith, are ready to assume their cross. So I thought that was quite interesting that uh, even at that early, before Brigham Young had died, that uh, they were already seeing those people leaving Uh, or rejecting, not sorry, rejecting, not leaving polygamy, actually rejecting polygamy.
2: And I want to point out that I have heard several stories, these sort of apocryphal stories in families. One um, in particular where during this period, Brigham asks a man to take on, you know, a polygamous wife. He says no, and then his whole farm burns down, right? And that becomes Mm -hmm. family lore or whatever. So, it's just interesting how how these family stories kind of build up this idea of polygamy being the way that God wanted it. Yet we see the reality of it is a little bit more complicated.
1: Yes, I absolutely. And you know that I think again I wish we, had, you know, people had documented. And we as a people, I, I don't want to be critical of that because we Mormons are fantastic at. Uh, at documenting. I mean, I look at versus my family who were all, uh, non-Mormons and the little documentation going back and how in, uh, my wife's family who were Mormons back to 1831 and the documentation's amazing. So, but yeah, it would be nice to have those all documented. Here's a, I, I found this interesting statement by Susie Young Gates. Now remember, she's, I mean, she's Brigham Young's daughter. Matter of fact, some would call her his favorite daughter. She uh, was an advocate of polygamy. She was married and divorced and then married again to uh, Jacob Gates. Uh, She was madly in love and probably, I I believe she probably had an affair with uh, Joseph F. Smith um, while he was married. And and maybe she was even married to that first husband. Uh, but in the Young Women's Journal um, in 1893, she asked the women, she asked these young women, she said, uh, she asked the women, she says, you women who have treated the holy principle, plural marriage, with neglect, sneers, mocking abuse, and even cursing and railing. And, and then she goes on to say that she says it is their sin that polygamy was abandoned by the church because of negative attitudes toward it by the Mormon women themselves, including herself. So, you know, you've got the, the women, and and you and I talked once before about one of Brigham Young's daughter-in-laws who, you know, had uh, the relationship with the soldier who was a monogamous. You have to believe that for these women, And seeing polygamy, they were they were rejecting. They were not, uh, and that again we talked about. This is the majority of the women. This is how they felt.
2: And I think that that's important because, as an LDS woman in the church, I was often told, "Well, the reason why, Lindsay, the reason why you are uncomfortable with polygamy." In fact, I had a seminary teacher that I really looked up to tell me this: the reason why you're uncomfortable with polygamy now is because you're not. The Lord has taken it from the earth. So that's because it's not right right now. And that's why you're uncomfortable. But when it is right, you'll you'll feel more comfortable with it.
1: I remember hearing, you know, even as a young man, I remember hearing that, that uh, rationale. And as we're showing in this podcast, that is not the case. Um, today, I was lucky enough to have a person tell me about one of his ancestors. Her name is Elizabeth Brock- Brockbank. And she was uh, 12 years old when she left england this would have been in 1852 and she arrived in salt lake city uh when she was in the us she traveled up the mississippi from new orleans to st louis and then um up to the drop off, drop off point um where the Mormons then immigrated. She actually had the experience of seeing the ship Saluda, the steamer ship Saluda. I don't, do you know the story about Saluda in Missouri? Have you ever? No. Uh, Saluda is a famous ship and, and, uh, a couple of professors, uh, Bill Hartley and Fred Woods, I believe is his name. Um, and Fred Woods has done the most research on it, have written about the steamship Saluda. Saluda was a, a passenger ship. That had the majority of the passengers, if I remember right, were Mormon and it exploded, um, while it was on the Mississippi along the banks of the, the Missouri, uh, state of Missouri. And I can't remember the town now, but the townspeople came out and rescued all the survivors and they retrieved as many of the bodies of the dead that they possibly could gave them all burials at their own cost the town's cost they the people in of this city of missouri and, and surrounding communities pitched in and and did everything they could with medical care to uh give to the children to the to, well to all the survivors children adults there was a, a wide range of survivors in age and they, they brought them, you know, kept them. They gave them money for those who wanted to continue on the trek to Utah. The families, the children who lost, um, their parents, they were adopted into the Missouri families if they wanted to, if they didn't have family that wanted to take them or, or other people who couldn't take them on West. They were raised by these people, uh, and you know, it's a great story. People just need to know about this because we always hear that, oh, you know, the Missourians did the extradition order and uh, um, and they they wanted they were bloodthirsty to kill the 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 Mormons. Well, I hate to say it, but the Missourians only had an issue with Mormons till the fall of eighteen thirty eight, and after that, they if anything, the Mormons. Kept the Missouri, the Missourians kept the Mormons protected in, in this example and many others where Missourians went out of their way to protect them
2: Fascinating that's I didn't know that story
1: yeah and, and Elizabeth Rockbank said that she you know in her experience actually saw the remnants of the fire and, 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 and some of the survivors. So anyway, so on the trek west, the family near Fort Laramie, the family unfortunately lost their mother. They never found her. They don't know. She went off to pick berries. When they moved on, it's a weird story because when they moved on and they made camp again, then they realized she was missing. They went back, didn't find her. And so anyway, so they lost her and uh, never did find her, never recovered her anything and uh they left word at fort laramie about her loss and the the people at fort laramie said if they ever heard from her they would they would contact and the family never did so elizabeth brockbank who's at 12 years old tragically loses her mother and has to care for a a her mother's baby who hadn't even been weaned and they in the story it's uh said the family story that the uh Baby would cry day and night because she, you know, had been was still nursing.
0: Aww. So
1: when, yeah. So when the father um, comes to Salt Lake, it, less than a month later, he ends up marrying one of the women that was in the company. And uh, so here's, but here's the focus. Here's the story about her experience with polygamy. And, and this is written by a descendant. It's in the Family History Library, this, this account. It's published uh, in a, a book. Uh, when she was 15, which was October eighth, eighteen 1853, the family was still living in Palmyra, Utah. She went to live with a family named Pollock. They were quite well fixed because they had been in the valley for some time. Mr. Pollock used this to persuade her, Elizabeth, to marry him and go with his older wife to southern Utah where they had been called she started south with them but before they reached fillmore she repented of her rash act in marrying an older man and leaving home while so young there she found a man a friend whom she had known in salt lake she refused to go on and this friend hid her and stood by her sometime later president young came through fillmore on his way to dixie she went to him and told him her story asking that he help her her marriage was annulled by this order. now what's interesting about that the, i i believe it i believe that the 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 general part of it's actually accurate but what's interesting is that you know that it, she talks about this older man you know marrying an older guy and and all of this stuff and that you know she went to bring him in well the interesting part is though when she goes to fillmore which is just a short time later she actually marries a man who's 16 years her senior. Now he is a monogamist, but she's only 16, and he's 31. And she did make she has this marriage less than 10 months later. So young would have had to have you know I mean it's like right after that marriage she would have had to have approached Brigham Young if that part of the story is true. Now remember though Brigham Young also got paid for every divorce. So and it was the responsibility of the man. So as a punishment to this man. A uh, Pollock, who she married, he would have had to have paid Brigham Young a fee for that divorce. So I thought that was an, an, a very interesting story.
2: So um, you're saying she would have had to ask permission for her new marriage too, to the monogamous?
1: Well, it, they probably did. She probably had to have at least asked a bishop. You know, they or actually, it would have been more common for the man to have asked a bishop or state president for permission. There's there's quite. A few letters in the Brigham Young collection where men are either writing him directly or bishops and state presidents are writing to Brigham Young requesting permission for some, for somebody to marry.
2: As a side note, do you want to just tell us really quick about being paid money? Uh, I think it was Wilford Woodruff's journal that Brigham would be paid money for these marriages
1: right he got paid right he got paid i don't remember the amount either now but yeah it's in wilford woodruff's journal that's right dan vogel uh, posted that and yeah brigham got paid for the marriage and he then got paid for the door so he got you going both ways <laughs> <laughs> um
2: so she so she turns down this guy um a terrible marriage after traveling all this way and she gets well it almost again. sounds
1: to me like she she snuck yeah, she snuck out. She actually snuck away, you know, escaped essentially. Uh, there, the, she had the to wagon. hide. Pardon?
2: She was hid by her friend.
1: And then hid, right. And then hid by her friend there in Fillmore. Um, and while, I guess, while the people were going through, maybe looking for her, or I, you know, there's really, unfortunately, that's all the detail. And I, I, I went and looked at her brother's autobiography too. And didn't find much more detail than that. So, but yeah, so yeah, it it's it's an int- it's an interesting story, and I I don't I would think there may be more of those kinds of stories than we know about. Um, and uh, the next story is a very interesting story and a very complicated story. And uh, Mike Quinn actually is the one who. Who I discovered it from in, in that paper that he gave down in Millennial Park just in March. Uh, I'm sorry, Centennial, Centennial Park. Park. Mm-hmm. Centennial Park, yeah. In March, he talks about a woman named Nora Taylor and her married name, uh, that, that she had at her death is Bergener. And it's interesting because her son, Nora Taylor Bergener, and her husband, who she married, their son, his name is claire bergener and he actually was a u.s congressman for five terms from san diego california so it, it this is an interesting the the, the all the different uh, connections in this story are very interesting so i first got to read anthony ivan's diary of her description of the plural marriage here's what anthony ivan's writes on january 25th 1911. This evening, I called upon Nora Cowley. She says she was married in Canada by a patriarch. He was sick in bed and not expected to live. Brother Cowley took her to the house and went in, leaving her on the outside, and told the wife of the sick man he wished a private interview with her husband. The woman went out, and Nora entered. The patriarch was propped up in his bed with bandages around his head. He spoke in a voice so low that she could not hear a word he said. Brother Callie told her when to say yes. After he finished, she asked Brother Callie if that was all. He said yes. She thought it a singular way to get married. Later, Brother Kelly warned her to carefully not violate the covenant she had entered into. She said she had made no covenants and called attention to the fact that she did not hear a word of what was said by the patriarch. Yeah, an interesting marriage ceremony. Um, and this, by the way, is Matthias Cowley. He's an apostle.
2: Yeah. And,
1: yeah. He's so,
2: famous in all of our post-manifesto stuff.
1: That's correct. He's he's one of the guys that uh, the fundamentalist Mormons look to for, uh, I guess, uh, not... Well more so of his post manifesto post second manifesto marriages that he performed. There's a dissertation and I sent you the link for it by Damon Smith, where he discusses this and, and Damon's dissertation is actually quite good in discussing a lot of the stuff that's going on with Matthias Cowley and John W. Taylor. And so Damon quotes from a letter that's written by Ernest Taylor. Now this is Nora Taylor's father and this Nora Taylor, Ernest Taylor, this entire family and Ivan's are all down in Mexico. They're all in the colonies down in Mexico. And so uh, Ernest Taylor, and, and, and this is all happening after the second manifesto. So that was in January 25th, 1911. And the reason that these interviews are going on is because Ivan's and Lyman, and all these guys are trying to find out what Cowley and Taylor had been up to with these post-manifesto plural marriages. And it depended on what you said in your letters, whether you would be excommunicated or not. If you protected the apostles and gave them an out, most likely you stayed a member of the church. If you didn't, most likely you'd be excommunicated. Well Ernest didn't write what he should have. So and he he wrote the letter instead of Nora Taylor because the, the letter from uh from Ivans was actually written specifically to Nora Taylor because he was wanting details. And this is before, this is like three months before the January meeting. And so Ernest Taylor writes and says that Brother Kelly has told me repeatedly that in case you should ask Her, meaning his daughter Nora, when she was married, to tell you the March 4th, 1904. See, because that would put it before, if that was the date, that would put it before the second manifesto. When the fact of the matter is, she was going to school here at the time and had not yet graduated, which your girls well know. You are all you are a little mistaken about your talk with Nora in regard to Apostle Merrill. Merrill, because I even suggested that it was, um, Mariner Merrill who had done the ceremony again because he was sick in late 18 or 1904. So he couldn't have done a marriage after 1904 either. So this, they're, they're all maneuvering trying to make it appear that all this stuff's happening before nineteen o or before the second manifesto. So anyway, she says you'd, didn't talk to her about that matter while you were here. So they were not married by Brother Merrill nor under his direction. Neither were they married in Utah, which is another big problem because that the fact that they were married in Canada then. So, so Ernest, so, so Ernest actually gets excommunicated ultimately because of this correspondence.
2: Yeah. Um, that's fascinating to me. And it shows me sort of the predicament, that the manifesto left men and women, but particularly women, and because if you're a polygamous man, I think you had a lot more leeway than, say, a single woman that is proposed to, especially in this climate. Because, like you said, from 58 on polygamy, the enthusiasm is waning, and especially post-manifesto, right? We, I mean, Paula Harleen talks about how women would hide their pregnancies from their... If they were a plural wife because they were ashamed to still be practicing polygamy and people were treated differently in their wards and things like that. So women were really in this particular pressure already. And then to be involved with an apostle, I can only imagine it was a lot worse.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I can't imagine the stress that, you know, and, and I recall and I, w- I wanted to find it, but I couldn't find it, but about a bishop, I believe he was a bishop and He was tried. This was like just about a year before the manifesto and he was tried for his membership because he was, um, speaking out against polygamy. If I remember the story right. And then no, no, no. I'm sorry. That's wrong. He was, he was given an office because he was speaking for. Polygamy. That's right. He was given a higher, and he 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 entered into a pl- plural marriage. So he was made a bishop because of it. So then, a year after after the manifesto came out, it, maybe it was like the second manifesto because Ivan's was in on the trial. So it had to have been after the second manifesto. So Ivan's is there sitting in the trial, per, uh, who had performed all of these post-manifesto plural marriages. And so this guy had been speaking out about, you know, polygamy, saying how good it was and how it was needed for salvation. So the high council with being overlooked with Ivans and there were two other apostles there who were asking, um, him questions about why is he supporting it? What he knows about post manifesto plural marriage, stuff like that. And then they excommunicate him because he, he was telling them about the stuff who Ivan's actually had been a part of. And he was telling them, you know, I mean, it was like, you know, this, this craziness of, of going on where, you know, one month you're put into a position and then the next month you get excommunicated, you know, it's just, Oh, it was, it was crazy. And women, exactly. Women, you know, didn't, they had to hide everything and women had to hide Constantly, I mean, it was, it was pretty much nonstop for women on hiding. Um, so back to Nora, she marries her, uh, Walter Herman Bergener in 1911 in California and, and she then um, dies in 1971, but Bergener, before he married Nora Taylor had married Laura Cowley. Who was Matthias Callie and Luella Smart's daughter. So, and, and, and that had to have occurred before November of, uh, well, before 1908, because, because they end up having Laura Callie and Bergener have a daughter in Mexico, November of 1908. So, And and I could never find a divorce. I'm guessing there was some divorce that occurred. And then Laura Kelly then goes on and marries a man named Edgar Brozart, who was actually a famous water irrigation person up at uh, Utah Agricultural School, which is your alma mater. And so here you've got Walter Bergener married to Matthias Kelly's daughter, which I think ultimately divorces her, and then marries Matthias Kelly's wife. (laughs) You know, so it's like whoa! All like I said, the, the the connections here are amazing, and and Bergner obviously was a was a monogamist. I at least I believe he was. I don't find any evidence that they did have a child, but beyond that, I believe that they were divorced. So when Bergner, Nora Taylor, Bergner, and Walter Bergner meet Kelly on a on a street some years later, she tells Mike Quinn. That Matthias Cowley says, you're together now, but she's my wife for eternity. Interesting. You know, these, yeah, yeah, these guys are still thinking in terms of polygamy.
2: Yeah, and I think that this was not uncommon. In fact, I have heard stories, again, anecdotal, of seminary teachers talking about this in <laughs> abuse scenarios with their... I'm trying to think of the one that was in the news a few years ago, he was saying the same thing. He was, oh, no, 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 it was a mission president. And he was saying, he was trying to recruit the sisters in his ward to agree to be plural wives in the next life.
1: Yeah, you and I heard that, I think, I can't remember where we heard that, but you're right. Wasn't that a mission president, like, in Australia or something? Yeah, you was, and I heard that. or
2: England. I can't remember, of course, so yeah. we don't have any oh, documentation. England,
1: since. England. It, matter of fact, well, and then there's the story of Tom Phillips. Who was the, when he was stake president, he had to excommunicate that, the, the bishop. And I think it was the, uh, his counselor because, yeah, they were converting women in the, in the ward to polygamy and marrying them secretly. So yeah. Yeah. And that was only what 1980s, 1990s. Yeah.
2: So I think that that justification, I mean, when you talk about, uh, Richard Lyman, right? He was found in bed with his plural wife in the fifties, was right. it? Right.
1: Right, yeah. right. yeah, No, 1940s. Nin- but they had had the relationship for like 20 years, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, he he took his relationship to, like, he took it to the extreme, to the actual live sense. But it's the same sort of rationale, like, the church prohibits it right now, but there are ways around this. And for a lot of men, still a lot of Mormon men today, the ways around this are to live it in the eternities, you know? mm- mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and you and I've talked about that too that that there are actually um different men who have been presidents of the church who uh posthumously uh, marry women have their wives actually stand in as the proxy of these women that they end up then marrying as their their plural wives um, which sort of is mind blowing to me um, so the uh the third story uh from the Utah era. And the final one that will, then we'll move on to other, um, is I think one of your favorites, if I remember right. This is Pearl Uta- Udall story. And it, it's really short for me because I don't, you may actually have a lot more to add to this. But Pearl Udall was a 23 year old teacher in Thatcher, Arizona, who happened to also be there when Spencer Kimball was, uh, growing up. With his family, so Rudger Claussen as an apostle, goes down there to do his uh, stake, you know, uh, organizations, whatever. David Udall is her father, who I believe is the to have been a bishop because because Spencer Kimball's father, Andrew Kimball, was the state president, I believe. So, so David Udall, though, and he was one of those early pioneers. As a matter of fact, he's famous for being the 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 early pioneer Mormon pioneer in Arizona.
2: Yeah, he was on the territorial legislature for Arizona too, as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then I mean, there's the famous Udall family, you know, with Morris Udall and and all of them. So matter of fact, is I think Mark Udall is uh, now a congressman in Colorado, I think. Um, and uh, so anyway, so Clausen started courting uh, Pearl Udall in August of 1903, and then they ultimately married in August of 1904, so just a year later. And and it it had to be serendipity because it was Matthias Cowley who performed that marriage in uh, Grand Junction, Colorado. And Claussen is an interesting guy because, and I highly recommend Prisoners for Polygamy's Sake, the edited letters of Redger Claussen done by Stan Larson. Stan Larson may be one of the great editors of Mormon Documents, but it's a great book, and I think it's actually on sale right now. So it's it's a great book to have. But so Redger Clausen was married at the time he was courting Pearl Utah. Utah, he was actually married polygamously to Lydia Spencer, but he actually never married her in a civil sense. He had been, and the reason he went to prison back in the eighteen eighties was because he had actually been married to Florence Dinwoody, who was from a very important, influential family there in uh, Salt Lake. So he married her, then he married Lydia Spencer shortly after, and then he was convicted of unlawful cohabitation was put in prison. So Dinwoody Denwoodie divorced him. Clausen never married Lydia Spencer. As his real wife. But he married Pearl Udall after the Second Manifesto. And so, because of all the stuff that was going on with not getting married and, and could possibly be excommunicated, Clawson had to keep it quiet. So only Joseph F. Smith, uh, Matthias Cowley, would have known about this marriage nobody else in the 15 would have even known about it so Claussen becomes mission president over europe and in october of 1912 pearl Udaw travels to europe her brother uh, actually has to go there also for a mission and he's the liaison between messages between Claussen and pearl udall for their rendezvous though there's actually evidence that Pearl Udall refused to sleep with them while in Europe because Clausen was pressuring her to get pregnant, and she wouldn't have anything to do with it. She did not want to bring a child into the world in the condition she was in. So the marriage probably was over with by this visit in Europe. And she actually met another interesting person, uh, Joseph E. Robinson, who was a mission president, over California and who openly lived with his wives, his plural wives who he had married post manifesto marriage in California. And she had gone to him and told her of her dilemma and not wanting to stay married to regular Cross, And so, so Joseph E. Robinson had convinced her at least to go to Europe and try and work it out. So she, uh, by the time she left Europe, she was, she was done. So in 1919, Udall married a uh, widower, widower, Joseph Nelson, in a temple ceremony. And the only reason she did it was because Heber J. Grant had convinced Nelson that the ceiling with Clausen had been canceled. Do you have more to add to that? Because that was about all I could find, all the detail I could find on that.
2: No, I think that's great. I think that's a good, a good summary, especially okay, good. because we've got a bunch
1: now. Okay, so let's move on to Nauvoo. So there's a an interesting drain to show you how, you know, I think and and there's a good there's good evidence that uh, Marianne Angle probably rejected any advances by Joseph Smith. Now Marianne Angle was Brigham Young's second wife technically, but his first monogamous wife. But his first wife, uh, after his, after His first, actual first wife had passed away. So Brigham Young married her. They had a long marriage. They actually, it was not nearly as disruptive as Parley Pratt and Marianne Frost marriage that we talked about before. Um, the the young marriage actually seems to be a fairly stable one for the most part. They didn't live together at the end of their marriage, but but for the most part it seems to be. And to show you how much trauma, and I think it is trauma, that Brigham Young was in over this marriage proposal that Joseph Smith had made to to Marianne Angle, he said he, he writes in his journal, he says, I had a dream Thought I was traveling to the east with my wife in a carriage covered. It stormed. I let the curtains down. Travel safe along through muddy. We turned to go back. Brother Joseph sat on the back seat with my wife. He whispered to her, said it was right if she was of mine. To nothing more passed between. As I drove along, the carriage drawed out to so long I could not see my wife. Brother Joseph Smith was on the seat. With me and I looked back to see my wife, but could not. Could not. Brother Joseph said he was. He must go and get the carriage or part of it that had Mary Ann in it. We got the carriage, but saw nothing of Mary Ann, for she is for she was inside and the carriage closed with a curtain and they was black. We was pulling it over a bridge last I remember. Now this is December of eighteen forty-three, so this is at the height. Of, of Nauvoo polygamy and the swapping of wives and all that stuff going on. And, and, and the first part of that dream is clearly Joseph Smith seeking Marianne to be his plural wife. The second part is, and that's why it's so ominous. That second part of the dream is, is Brigham Young dreaming that Marianne Angle had actually died. So there's a lot there. And I really see this as a, as a traumatic dream. That it had gone on. The next experience also has to do with breaking Now this is this is before the events of this is all. They all occur before this dream, so uh, and could actually be. You know, there's no evidence of this. I'm just guessing, but could actually be because of what the events were now going to describe. So this is about Brigham Young's experiences with a woman named Martha Brotherton.
2: And we've talked and about her I'm a little a, bit on the podcast.
1: And I'm not going to read really from her um, affidavit. We'll link to it, but but I think it's important that people take the time to read her affidavit. So, but but Brigham Young's first association with uh, Martha Brotherton as well. He's on his mission in England. And so remember, she's going to only be, uh, what, 15 years old at this time. So, no, I guess 16. She's going to be 16. He says, I pre, he, this is again, he's writing in his, his journal. He says, I preached in the Carpenter's Hall yesterday in the morning, Brother Heber C. Kibble in the evening. Now at, uh, Ed gorgeous Walker's. Monday was at a meeting in the evening of Brother Cooper's, stayed at Brother Walker's all night. Tuesday night stayed at Father Brotherton's. So he's actually spending the night with the Brotherton's. So the Brotherton's come, so that's in March of 41. So by November of 41, the Brotherton's leave England and come to Nauvoo. Now, remember in our Pratt podcast that Elizabeth Brotherton, Martha Brotherton's older sister, ends up marrying Pratt. The rest of the family actually leave Mormonism and uh because of the events that we're now going to so so martha brotherton is asked to go by heber c kimball uh this would have probably been after january of 1842 but before sometime before april uh first 1842 so we just don't know when but in one of those those three months so Heber C. Kimball asks Martha Brotherton to come to her house. He starts interviewing her, saying, you know, stuff like, do you believe in the prophet? Will you do what the prophet asks of you, Brother Joseph Smith? Do you, will you do, you know, what he says? And she's thinking, yeah, I'll do what he says. You know, he's a good man. You know, he's a prophet of God. Of course I'm going to follow and do what he says. So, uh, so she says that. Uh, she, you know, says, yeah, of course. So she goes in. And so, oh, so, so Heber Kimball says to her, okay, uh, we got to meet up with Brigham Young. I got to talk to him. So they're, they the three of them start going and they're heading to the red brick store there in Nauvoo. And Brigham Young says, I got to go do something. I got to go get Brother Joseph over something, or I think. And, and so, uh, Heber Kimball takes her to the red brick store. And they go upstairs to Joseph Smith's office and Brigham Young shows up, shuts the door, locks the door with a key and basically tells her about polygamy and says that Joseph Smith has told him that she's to be his wife. And so she sits there and listens and she's not convinced and she basically says she's not convinced by it. So he says, well, okay. So if I get brother Joseph Smith here and he'll convince you, right? So she says, okay. So they bring Joseph Smith and they lock the door again and, and the pressure. And by the time they're done, Joseph Smith, Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young are all putting amazing some amount of pressure. She thinks, I mean, this is a 17 year old girl. Think, I, I can't imagine a 17 year old old young lady being so quick on her feet thinking this through. I can't even imagine any 17 year old. I mean, I shouldn't say a 17 year old girl. I mean, a 17 year old thinking on their feet so quickly. But she says, she goes, well, can't I have at least a day to think about this? And then I'll give you your answer. And I think the next day was like Sunday. So she from that point on avoids them and, and ultimately leaves. And there's enough rumors going around by April, whenever this took place, so whether it's January, February, March, but by April 6th, Joseph Smith is so nervous about this experience that he says at the conference spoke, and this is according to, I think, uh, uh, um, Clayton writes this. He says, Spoke in contradiction of a report in circulation about Elder Kimball Brigham Young and himself, and others of the Twelve, alleging that a sister had been shut up in a room for for several days, and that they had endeavored to induce her to believe in having two wives. Elizabeth Brotherton, the one who ends up marrying Parley Pratt, uh, says about her sister, that she writes a letter that's actually published in the Millennial Star, smearing smearing her sister's name she says she and many others of the english saints have proved that the statements made by my sister martha oh i'm sorry when she said she she actually met her sister mary brotherton and many of the other english saints have proved that the statements made by my sister martha are falsehoods of the basest kind so they've also got, I mean, they've got her sister smearing the 17 year old young lady's name
2: now, so I just want to point out, uh, Brian Hales, who we had on last episode, in his, uh, article that he's written about Bennett, he sort of discredits the story and he claims, like, things like the kiss. You know, there are rumors. Bennett says that Brigham forced a kiss on her and Brian argues why he thinks that that didn't happen. Do you think that do you think that there's any reason to not believe that maybe Martha Brotherton was making this up?
1: Well, first of all, okay, why is Joseph Smith at the conference go attacking her? Why use her family to attack her, to smear her if it's all a lie? If it's all a lie, nobody's going to pay attention. You know, you smear somebody because you're covering your family <laughs> you know it's it, i mean that's just nonsense i'm sorry but that's just nonsense um and and they're doing this and they're smearing her 2 months before or is it 3 months no 3 months before she makes her affidavit of July on July 13 and uh 1842 and then it's published in the in a St. Louis paper You know, so, so why are, again, you have to ask the question, why are they trying to discredit her when she hasn't even, I mean, yeah, she's gone public, probably among her family, but why are they making all this effort to discredit her before there's any knowledge of her ever? I mean, she hasn't even probably made a decision to go and talk to John C. Bennett. So my this.
2: understanding was she went immediately after, and it was published soon in the Sangamo Journal. Am yeah. I wrong about that? There
1: was there was rumors of it, but the actual affidavit, if I recall, and again, you know, maybe I'm messing up on my dates here, but the the uh, the affidavit is dated, uh, sworn and subscribed to me this day of this 13th day of July, AD 1842 uh in front of justice of the peace do buffet Freeman and that's the affidavit that was published uh again, I think there were rumors but and there had been discussion um but the actual affidavit was in july okay so yeah um and and again, just Smith has a history of this you know I mean Nancy Rigdon. Uh, Sarah Pratt, um, you know, this is, this is, this is Joseph Smith's, um, uh, this has got Joseph Smith's handwriting written all over it of, of how, how to destroy a person's character and particularly a woman's character. Also, I should say, and I'm guessing you've read Martha Brotherton's affidavit. When I read it that first time, well, I don't know, a few years ago, um, um, it just rang true to me. I like nothing, nothing I had ever read rang true to me like that rang true to me. Um, I don't know. How did you feel? How did you feel when you read it?
2: Um, I felt shocked because <laughs> I think the context when I read it was probably different. I didn't have a lot of context at the time, but I do think that um, it is likely true. I think that it is easy to, if this were an isolated case and we could prove that Martha Brotherton had other agendas or other, you know, character flaws that would, you know, establish a pattern or something. But it just feels like slut shaming to me. It feels like um, Joseph had, this was not the first controversy, right, that he was involved with with women in doing this. And, uh, it was probably the first that Brigham was publicly involved with, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's unfortunate what happened to her. I don't think that there's any reason to believe, even though her sister testified against her, that, uh, her character was full of lies. I don't think this was a lie. I think it was a bold thing to do. And I don't think she gained, I mean, do we have any proof that she gained anything from writing this affidavit?
1: No, if anything, she had a heartache. Uh, the letters, her letters, um, I've read and, uh, the letters of her family, um, they're in the, uh, Pratt, uh, collection, the Pratt family collection and which is all digitized on the church history library. Uh, they're, they're part of, um, Elizabeth Brotherton's correspondence and they are heart-wrenching letters um this this tore this episode tore that family apart it divided the family and it was never ever reconciled so if anybody if if anybody can read those letters and come away and think oh yeah martha Brotherton was a slut or a whore or a liar uh a liar whatever william smith wants to uh call her um because that's what I was just going to read to us is the, that William Smith writes in his, uh, Wasp, the Nauvoo Wasp of August 27, 1842. So this is a month after the affidavits published. He says, he writes, he says, uh, in these United States, John C. Bennett, the pimp and file leader of such mean harlots as Martha H. Brotherton and her predecessors, flourish with impunity. So right there, you got the prophet's brother calling her a whore. So so Martha Brotherton returns to England and she, she passes away in 1864. Young hears about this from Elizabeth Brotherton and uh, well, actually I shouldn't say that because there's some debate whether this happened in August 1st, 1870 or 1879, I found two dates. That, uh, Brotherton was, was sealed in the St. George Temple for eternity to Brigham Young. And, uh, her sister Elizabeth Brotherton was, uh, acted as proxy for her to do that. So Brigham Young got his wish. I
2: think, I think that's, that to me shows a certain smugness. Um, I've heard other people interpret it something else but to me it's it looks like wounded pride right that he that he did that but some are saying no he really believed that you know joseph wanted him to marry this woman i don't see it that way i see it as an ego thing but yeah. either way it's offensive
1: well yeah now just a, a comment you know i mean a little bit of defense for bringing out on this if it did occur in 1879 that Brigham's is already dead if it occurred in 1870, he's obviously uh alive. But from the letters that I read, um it's clear that Elizabeth Brotherton was really the impetus for this ceiling. Now, my question would be, okay, if that's the case, see, I find that actually way more damning, <laughs> you know, for the 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 allegation that she's lying about this why would elizabeth brotherton be so insistent on sealing her sister to brigham young and and that is really the case it's not brigham young who sought that it is martha or it is it's elizabeth brotherton who sought for that ceiling so why would she want that for her sister if that you know if that meeting didn't take place just exactly, a yeah. Yeah, just a thought. Um, Amira Knight, who was uh, Martha and Vincent Knight's daughter, uh, was approached about two years after, so in the spring of 1844. She was approached by her mother, who had been sealed to, after her father's death, had been sealed to Joseph Smith as one of his plural wives. And so her mother approached her, asked her if she would be one of, uh, Hiram Smith's wives. Now, this is after Hiram Smith had married multiple women. Her, she was only 16 years old when her mother did this. Uh, Almira Knight said that she was not interested and she actually, just a few months later, married Sylvester. This is after Hiram Smith had been murdered in, 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 uh, Carthage. Um, she married Sylvester Stoddard and moved away from, uh, shortly after moved away to Akron, Ohio. So that, uh, that happened quickly. An interesting thing that Stan, Sam Taylor wrote, I thought that, that gives an idea of the feelings. Um, and Sam Taylor was John W. Taylor's son. And so, and Sam Taylor was a, a great, uh, author. He actually won an Academy Award for the Absent-Minded Professor, for writing the Absent-Minded Professor. So, um, he writes that the motive, um, for plural marriage is that Sam was a funny man. I, I wish I could tell you the stories about him. He, we should do something about him because he was a funny man. Anyway, he said the threat, to her daughter at age of 17, at this period in Deseret, when an old man began losing his steam, he was dealt a young girl as a pl- plural wife to revitalize him. Brigham did the dealing. His permission was essential, while a special exaltation the hereafter was promised a nubial maiden who married an old man on earth. To her mother, it was a monstrous situation which made her flesh crawl." When an appeal to Brigham failed, her only recourse was to eliminate the man in charge. Sam, that's that's pure Sam Taylor writing. Uh, and actually, though, there's a bit of uh, evidence to support Sam in that, because there's a letter uh, written by, I think, Daniel Wells that you and I have talked about, where he talks about um, Orson Pratt getting a 16-year-old woman, to a 16-year-old girl to, to marry him, and uh, Wells and the other person uh, that's there are joking about how um, uh, Pratt Orson Pratt looks sixteen years younger after uh, sleeping with her that night, and uh, the girl looks sixteen years older. So um, this, uh, even though Sam's making fun of this, unfortunately, it seemed to to happen in reality let's move on to rachel ivan's grant um rachel ivan's grant was the mother of heber grant the president of the church in heber grant's uh address of october 3rd 1842 he said that i had always understood and known that my mother was sealed to the prophet and that Brigham young had told my father that he would not marry my mother to him for eternity because he had instructions from the prophet that if anything happened to him before he was married to Rachel Ivins, he must be sealed to him for eternity that she belonged to him so it's it it and that's true that that uh, on uh, 29th of November 1855 Rachel Grant was uh I think that's the date was sealed to Joseph Smith for time and eternity well then they and uh, that she then was married to Jedediah Grant for uh, for mortality um, it's interesting to look at Heber J. Grant's diary and see what he thought about this it uh, uh, here's what he wrote, December 13, 1899. After he had, uh, this was at the funeral of Emily Partridge Young, who had been one of Joseph Smith's plural wives. Also, he said he writes. He says, "Brother Joseph F. In his remarks today, bore a wonderful, strong testimony as to the devotion of Sister Young and others who had been sealed to the Prophet Joseph Smith as plural wives. He also bore a powerful testimony." as to the rightfulness of plural marriage and the inspiration of Almighty God to the Prophet Joseph Smith in restoring the same to earth. He testified to the eternity of marriage covenant, referred to the fact that he looked upon me as his cousin, my mother having been sealed to the Prophet Joseph Smith for eternity. His remarks were very powerful indeed and delivered under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, uh Jedediah Grant was no small fries in the Mormon hierarchy either. I mean he was he was Brigham Young's counselor, he was mayor of Salt Lake City, but this idea of being a part of the Joseph Smith family for these people obviously was very important. On uh this is at the funeral of Reuben T. Miller, and this is March twenty ninth, nineteen oh one, Brother Joseph F. Smith followed occupying the remainder of time he spoke with a great deal of power and force he announced that he looked upon me as being the seed actually a prophet joseph smith under the new and everlasting covenant my mother having been sealed to the prophet for all eternity and only married to my father for time on march nineteenth, 1826 he says inasmuch as my mother was sealed to the prophet for eternity and so also was sister emily partridge uh Emily Young Clausen and the hereafter will be my sister. So there's there's a real uh dynastic sense to all this too. Even though Rachel Ivans matter of fact Rachel Ivans is said to have when when Joseph Smith when she found out, she found out that Joseph Smith was after her from her friend Sarah Kimball, who also uh had rejected um, Joseph Smith's advances to her as well. And her husband paid a, uh, a huge price for that, um, in one of the meetings of the Nauvoo City Council. He was a non-member who then, after Joseph Smith was murdered, uh, he then became a member. But, she, but, uh, Sarah, or Rachel Ivins, I'm sorry, Sarah, Rachel Ivins is said to, to have said, she had, she would sooner go to hell as a virtuous woman than to heaven as a whore. So.
2: Yeah, that's, we talked about this when we talked about the Heber J. Grant episode.
1: Ah, uh, okay. Good, good. So, and actually moving on to Sarah Granger Kimball. Um, so she was, uh, in Wilford Woodruff's journal, he says on March 2nd, 1871 that he was sealed. or that he sealed i'm sorry that he sealed joseph smith and sarah melissa granger president young visited us today so clearly he was doing that uh, even though sarah again sarah uh, granger kimball had rejected an interesting just a just an interesting sideline is augusta adams cobb who was a married woman and had an affair with brigham young in Boston and then ultimately married Brigham Young as his second plural wife. She was promised to be his first plural wife, but Lucy Decker ended up being Brigham Young's first plural wife after, uh, uh, Marianne Engel. And
2: and, uh, and this is, this is important because we talked about this in the first part of the series with John Hamer, um, the Price, Richard Price and uh, Pamela, is it Pamela Price?
1: Yes, exactly. Uh,
2: in their uh, Joseph Polygamy polemic, they this is the thrust of their article that Augusta Cobb, who comes from the Knight influence and was a polygamist, sort of lures Brigham Young into polygamy.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> Uh, obviously, they never read any of Augusta Adams Cobb's letters. Um, so here, this is from uh, a letter to Brigham Young for February 4th, 1862. Now, Brother Brigham Young, it, she always, she called it, I, she called him a lot of things, but, but, uh, she always addressed him as Brother Brigham Young to, and then would add other things to it. Uh, can you not see? how all this disgrace and distress might have been avoided. Most assuredly you can, if you'd allowed me to have gone up to Nauvoo free and untrammeled. So this, she's actually saying, you know, if you had not slept with me, <laughs> um, that, that and then let me go to Nauvoo without that. She said, in my spirit, I should have been Brother Joseph the first thing. But instead of that, you expected a promise of me, that I would not see him alone, saying he would certainly overcome me. I replied, if he did, he would be the first man. You then said, I had never had to deal with a prophet of the Lord. Now suppose he had overcome me, and I should, by that means, have raised up a son, or a king, if you please." who would have been the wiser fun stuff, huh? Yeah. So here's another one. This is again to do with bringing in. Well, this is Utah period. And, uh, George Watt was the first Mormon to actually know Pittman Shortham And we owe a great debt to George Watt. We have pretty much word for word, um, addresses, by the leaders of the church and it was it was george watt's pitman shorthand that gives us that so before george watt and that's why we don't have any word for word addresses by joseph smith because george watt was not dictating it was thomas bullock and he had his own type of shorthand but he was not able to keep up with Joseph Smith or anybody, actually, it, it's not. It wasn't that Thomas Bullock was slow, or Joseph Smith was fast in talking. It was just the reality that that when you're taking longhand, even if it's a modified longhand, you can't keep up with somebody. And and so George Watt was capable of doing that. So George Watt's stepsister, who's uh, I believe, uh, let's see, her name is Jane Brown she comes to utah in 1857 and i'm sorry no not 1857 i'm sorry 1851 and brigham young catches a glimpse of her and sees that she's one hot young babe and uh so he wants to marry her this is jane brown's heart-wrenching letter to brigham young it it, it broke my heart when i read it and i had Levina fielding anderson read it too and and she she reacted the exact same way i did she said, pardon the liberty I now take of introducing myself to you through these few lines. I am Jane Brown, the half-sister of George D. Watt. He has made me acquainted with your counsel touching our union, which, alas, is unfavorable to the same what I am to do. My affections, my whole affections, are placed upon him. She's talking about George Watt. That's who she's in love with, and that's why she came to America. She wants to marry him. His manly bearing his untiring kinmanship, and unshaken faithfulness as a brother and a friend has, has won my love, over which I have no control. To love another is to me impossible, so if I get not the man of my choice to introduce me into salvation, the remainder of my days will be wretched. Unless the Lord shall kindly interpose and give me another spirit, I do not oppose your counsel, but will abide by it with patient resignation. If I die, but I wish you to know how seriously it affects me, I wish to ask you one question, which, if you can answer in the affirmative, will give me some comfort. But if not, I shall consider myself condemned to suffer under the effects of eternal disappointment. Can I have George in eternity? I have no more to say but a grief-stricken heart. I remain your humble servant, Jane.
2: Oh, well, man.
1: it must have touched Young's heart enough because he allowed Jane to marry Watt, and uh, just to, actually just about a uh, six months later, and uh, they ended up having five children or four children, I believe. Wow! Yeah. So I mean, you know, there's a whole another complication of marrying your half brother, but uh, but obviously this woman
2: also not uncommon. In polygamous families.
1: That's, yeah, yeah, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> okay. If to, that's to probably
2: the- not fair. I'm sure I have Mormon fundamentalist listeners. It's not uncommon in some polygamous families.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You did. I said, that's a whole nother episode. Yeah, you did that episode.
2: We did that episode. We did.
1: <laughs> You've been there, done that. <laughs> um, well, to leave on an even more fun note, uh, this is from Melissa Schindel. This is an affidavit she gave on the second day of July, 1842. She's talking about Joseph Smith. She is uh, Adam. A, uh, I think this is, um, well, I think she tells. She's, she's actually at another person's house. So she says she was, so, so Melissa Schindel is staying at, uh, a widow, widow named Fuller. And, uh, the widow Fuller, if I recall, also had a lot to do with polygamous stuff going on. I think she was even connected with John C. Bennett, but I, 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 it's been so long since I've read that stuff. But anyway, she says, uh, that uh, Widow Fuller has recently been married to Mr. Warren in the city of Nauvoo, and that Joseph Smith came into the room where I was sleeping about 10 o'clock at night, and after making a few remarks, came to um, her bedside and asked her if he could have the privilege of sleeping with her. She immediately replied, no. He, on the receipt of the above answer, told her that it was the will of the Lord that he should have illicit intercourse with her, and that he never proceeded to do anything of that kind with any women without first having the will of the Lord on the subject. And further he told her that if she would consent to to let him have such intercourse with her, she could make his house her home as long as she wished to do so, and that she should never want for anything it was in his power to assist her, but she would not consent to it. He then told her that if she would let him sleep with her that night, he would give her five dollars, but she refused his proposition. He then told her that she must never tell of his proposition to her, for he had all influence in that place, and that if she told, he would ruin her character, and she would be under the necessity of leaving. He then went to an adjoining bed, where the widow and dash, dash, dash was sleeping, got into bed with her and laid there until about one o'clock when he got up, bid them all good night and left them and further this deponent saith not. And maybe that's where I should end too. Yeah.
2: um, That's a hard story. And I have heard you can read fairs take on Melissa Schindel, but I think that this, this highlights something for me. So we talk about how as feminists, um, how polygamy can really subjugate women. And it's a very patriarchal system, the women that are living in it. But I think that this speaks to the ripple effects of this practice that it really was a way to control women's sexuality because Melissa Schindel was one of the women after she turns him down, Joseph actually does say public things about her and, um, Calls her names, and I don't have the exact wording right now, but it's in the Sangamo Journal that publishes it. And I feel like women that turned it down also paid the price. And this is what we see in patriarchal systems like this: is if you're compliant, you get some sense of soft power, and if you're not, you can be destroyed.
1: You know, Lindsay, they bring up uh, people who who claim that that there were no that obviously these women are liars because. Uh, you know, there's, there was no repercussion. Uh, look at Sarah Granger Kimball and look at Rachel Ivins. Well, Rachel Ivins took off right after this happened. She took off and went back to New Jersey. And, uh, Melissa Granger Kimball, her th- husband was threatened to be, um, killed in the Nauvoo High Council that, that if he didn't keep his mouth shut and, and there are no affidavits, you know, with both Ivans and and uh, uh, Kimball. There are no affidavits that went public by those women. It was the women who went public, and
2: yeah, we have the Nauvoo, uh, the Wasp, which was a secular paper, I believe. They publish after this comes out. They say who is M- who is Mrs. Schindel a harlot? Yeah. And so, of course, for even speaking out, her. Everything is used against her.
1: And remember who's the editor of the WASP. It's Joseph Smith's brother, William Smith. Right. You know, I mean, these, these guys were, were covering for each other. Um, I mean, Brigham Young had a horrible time dealing with William Smith in Boston um, because he was betting every woman that he could find. And I mean every woman he could find. And it, to, to the point that even Brigham Young was having a difficult time with it. And and Joseph Smith made sure and protect his younger brother. So, you know, these guys were the, – those Smith brothers protected each other. You – even, you know, somebody, Brigham Young, who would follow uh, them – the Smith brothers, you know, he would do anything they said. And uh, he was – Brigham Young was still an outsider.
2: And um, I just want to point out that there is this inequity in this case because – who was a woman to defend her character, right? Especially in Victorian America, where virtue, the virtue, the sexuality of a woman was so important. There was sort of this whole entire culture built around it. And everybody knew this. And so um, this is why, like, and we still have remnants of this in America today. This is why a lot of um, victims of a sexual assault don't report it. When we think about these stories, we always have to remember the inherent power dynamic. Always, always, always. These women did not have, could not hold property. They basically, their, their husband could, they could be abused by their husbands in, in some ways legally. They, they could be defamed. They could lose all their belongings for speaking out. And, um, of course, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young had things to lose as well. And Joseph ultimately was murdered for a lot of this. But there is this, this inherent power dynamic when we're talking about all of these women.
1: Well, and as we, as, as we learned from you um, about that, you know, even, even in the uh, late, you know, 40, 50 years later, that as long as you hit your wife with uh, something under the size of probably a bit uh, like Joseph F. Smith hit um, um now her name escapes me, but anyway, his, his first wife, as long as he could hit her, you know, he could hit her with a cherry stick, you know, or a ch- ch- cherry uh, uh, branch, you know, if he hit her with the the whole uh, trunk, then, you know, then he could probably get in trouble. But you know, as long as he hit her with uh, the branch, that's okay, you know, so. Yeah,
2: I'm going to read an article um, that we talked about in the Brian Hill's interview, but this is from Al. They said, quote, In the 1800s, women were in deep trouble. Religious ideas about sin held that a woman's virtue was ruined if she had sex outside of marriage. Thus disgraced, a woman had few options if her seducer refused to marry her. Often she was banished, forced to live apart from family and community. This was an era when birth control was not widely available or reliable. Women could not vote, own property, or control their own money. They could also be committed to an insane asylum on the say-so of any man. Countless wo- fallen women who had been raped or jilted by their lover- lovers had to resort to prostitution to make ends meet. Anyway, so um, I think that this is a climate that these women, like, I don't think we can overstate the fear of their reputations being publicly printed in their paper about, you know, being a harlot. It's just, it's an insane amount of pressure.
1: Yes, and, and I, go, I keep going back to Martha Brotherton. Can you imagine, Lindsay, what it would be like to have your older sister, somebody who probably was the, well, she would have been the next most important female in your life outside of your mother, who's, who's, uh, who's ruining your reputation, who's going out of her way to destroy your reputation. That to me says a great deal about Martha Brotherton and her integrity. And, and standing up for what she believed in. And she went, you know, she went to England. And I mean, she couldn't even stay in America. She had to go back to England to live with the rest of her family. Most of the Brothertons actually ended up going back to England.
2: Well, thank you for coming on and telling the stories of these women. And we'd like to point out that, um, these were just a small sampling. Like you said, there are so many women out there that actually did say no. And, Um, they probably, the consequences probably weren't as dire for all of them, but some, sometimes it was.
1: Yeah. No, I think, I think the, the, uh, as I said at the beginning, the, the women in Utah who said no, I think that became the majority by, at least by the mid 1860s, that would have been the majority that just would have been so numerous that <laughs> what do you do, you know? I mean Brigham Young during the Reformation threatened those people and we talked about how they left with nothing. I mean many of them, you know, staggering into the soldiers uh camps naked, you know, after leaving Utah, uh because the Brigham Young made sure they left with nothing. Um But then, you know, by that point, by the mid 1860s, when you've got the, you know, the 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 majority saying no, you know, it's pretty hard at that point to to kick them all out.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, thank you for contributing to another controversial polygamy controversies episode.
1: And thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it.
2: And since we're almost done with the series, thanks for contributing to the series in general.
1: Oh, you've been a great person to work with. I've been the beneficiary of your talents.
2: And I, you. So everyone else, thank you for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, Year of Polygamy.